Thank you so much. Good morning. Communion. It's by nature going to be a reflective time because you have such mixed emotions, don't you, when you're thinking about the cross of Jesus Christ. There's this incredible sorrow as it relates to our sin. There's incredible joy as it relates to our salvation. So what we find here is this very unique tension that most people in this world do not experience. What I want to do with you is to introduce you to another very unique tension. It's a unique tension that's drawn out for us when we compare two mountains, Mount Sinai of your Older Testament and Mount Zion, which is in essence still to come. There's a present and a future reality to it. And to understand this creative tension that God has introduced into our hearts, our minds, our lives, I'd love for you to turn to Hebrews chapter 12. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18, down through verse 24. You and I are going to have to work through this tension together, a healthy tension. And when we understand the significance of what Mount Sinai represents and what Mount Zion represents, and see how the cross of Jesus Christ has, in essence, united those two mountains together. We'll see the practical implications they have for your life and for my life. This is not meant to be abstract. It's meant to be very practical. It's meant to tie the two testaments together, but we've got to understand the significance of what God is saying here and how it relates to your life and my life in the tension that God has intentionally brought into our souls as we understand the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity and how it's addressed through Jesus. So on this Communion Sunday where we're reflecting upon the cross of Christ, look very carefully with me now at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 18. Try to find Mount Sinai. And then somewhere along the way, I'll continue on, and all of a sudden, it's going to, you're going to say to yourself, I have now spotted Mount Zion. And ask yourself, how does this relate? Verse 18. For you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest, and the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no messages be spoken to them. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. But you have come to Mount Zion. And to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven under God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word, than the blood of Abel. 
Don't let this stay abstract. Try to understand now the significance of how this relates to your life and my life as we plunge into this together. And we look to our Lord in prayer. Now, Father, we thank you. We're thanking you that you are the God who speaks and that you have spoken through Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And we want your word, Father, to make sense to us. The book of Hebrews, as you've penned it, requires a fair understanding of the Older Testament. Help us to be able to understand the basics of what it assumes. The book of Hebrews is meant to apply these truths to our lives. Help us to do it. As we get our arms around this text. We want this to be preparatory for receiving the bread and receiving the cup. To transport our thoughts back to that cross where Jesus died for our sins was validated when he rose from the dead. So, Father, in these minutes together, now warm these hearts and engage these minds and shape these wills. For again, Father, we've come here now to see Jesus and him only. We're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, there's a story that captures my attention that I think goes a long way to help us to understand the dynamics of tension that you have when you're dealing with the, on one hand, the inaccessible majesty of God, and on the other hand, the approachable mercy of God. Back in the days in which Greece was at the forefront of all nations, leaders on the battlefields, there was a particular warrior whose name was Hector, known in history. He was about to go into battle, but he stopped first, coming into one of his rooms in his house to say goodbye to his family. His son was looking at him. Hector was in full battle armor, including this massive helmet that shielded most of his face. We're told that the little boy backed off, distanced himself, until finally Hector realized what was going on and took the helmet off his head and the boy realized that that was his father and came running to him. Now, people, Mount Sinai, in many ways, is God with the helmet on. Mount Zion, on the other hand, is God taking off his helmet. One deals with what you and I might describe as the inaccessible majesty of God. And you're going to see the way people are reacting as God's law is being delivered to Moses on Mount Sinai. There's a distancing. You ever felt that? But then there's a Mount Zion 
And God breaks into your life and my life experience. And here is God with the helmet off. And the inapproachable becomes approachable, not based upon our works, but based upon God's mercy. And so what I want to do now with Hector in our background and these two mountains at the forefront is to draw out a comparison between the two. We're going to start by looking at Mount Sinai in verse 18 down through verse 21 and try to understand what is it. What is it that God wants to teach us? Now, as we prepare for communion, let's make the following comparison. Verse 18 through 21, Mount Sinai. And notice that critical phrase, for you have not come. Now, you may have been raised in a religious background or orientation that created such a distance between you and God. It was all about the severity of God, the inapproachable nature of God. It could very well be you were raised in a tradition where God was remote and harsh and severe. Now, the writer of Hebrews understands something about Sinai as it relates to Zion, and don't miss what we're about to say. You can't get to Zion until you go through Sinai. You can't get to Zion until you go through Sinai. You can't start, you see, with the approachable mercy of God if you have not taken into account the inaccessible majesty of God. We can't deal, frankly, with the forgiveness of sins if we haven't taken into account the reality of sins as compared to the holiness of God. And so now, he wants us to seize our understanding here that otherwise would be on shaky ground by phrasing it this way, for you have not come. And you say, now, wait a second, what is he talking about? Now, what he's about to do is to give you a commentary upon what happened at Mount Sinai in the delivering of the law For you have not come to what may be touched. Notice how he uses the physical aspects here. A blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. And maybe that was your religious background. We need some help here. How do we understand the significance of what he's saying? And how does this relate, in fact, to the cross of Jesus Christ? Look at the passage that appears on the screen. Takes you right back to that older testament. Takes you back to Sinai in Exodus chapter 20. And now here we find that Moses recollecting his thoughts as it relates to his experience on Mount Sinai informs us here in Exodus 20, these words. Now, when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And don't miss it. They stood far off. 
Any religion that lacks an understanding of grace has got people standing far off. So at this point now, the holiness of God is being revealed. The severity of sin is on display. It's as if God has created a spiritual moat around that mountain, and nobody, but nobody is allowed to get near. And God seems so distant, yet so real. Has he ever seemed that way to you? What are you going to do with it? You got Hector with the helmet on. And so it said to Moses, you speak to us. This is the people talking to Moses now. We will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. They're lacking that sense of intimacy, aren't they? They're lacking that sense of proximity to God that you and I so desperately need. But when you are dealing with the holiness of God and you are dealing with the sinfulness of humanity, it leaves upon the heart this whole matter of a of a sense of spiritual, if not an even eternal, distance that somehow has got to be addressed. Moses ministers to their hearts. In verse 20, Moses said to the people, do not fear. That's a common phrase, isn't it, throughout the Bible. Do not fear. For God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. When someone sins, it's because the fear of the Lord is not before them. They're not dealing with the reality of the holiness of God, and they're not dealing with the reality of the sinfulness of sin. Now, what God was doing was preparing them for their wilderness experience, and preparing them furthermore for their Canaanite experience, where the Canaanites, a culture that did not view God as holy and did not view sin as sin, but there was a moral relativism in which they operated, God is preparing his people for those kinds of situations, as he does for you and as he does for me. So Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of the Lord may be, interestingly enough, the phrasing here, before you, not in you. That you may not sin. What does that do for the people at this point? You're checking it out. Because in Exodus chapter 20, you and I are told in this last sentence, the people stood far off. While Moses drew near, do you feel the tension now at this point? The people stood far off while Moses, who receives the law, has got to now draw near to inexplainable, inexpressible, inaccessible majesty. So it seems he drew near to the thick darkness where God was, and you say, but I love it where it says that Jesus is the light of the world. Now, that gives you a better sense then of what Moses is dealing with here. There's some courage. And he's been ordained by God to be the one to receive the moral law. 
It seems to be so relativized in today's culture. And so he makes his way into the thick darkness where God was. You gotta go through Mount Sinai to get to Mount Zion. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is doing here. Because he provides a commentary on the very verses that you and I see up on the screen. And so with the Hebrews 12 text in front of you, maybe on your device, maybe in the hardcover Bible you've got, for you have not come, key phrase, for you have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and a tempest. There's the physical dimension. And the sound of a trumpet and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. That's the oral dimension. Look at the emotional dimension. For they could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it shall be stoned. What's happening here? God has set the boundaries so that they can respect the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity in a way that was visually understandable. How do you get saved in a situation like that? We're living in a day and age of accessibility. We've got our devices. You can text, social media. It's there for us. Instant access. What does this say to 2016? It thrives on instant access, and we've got inaccessible majesty on our hands here. Moses, in fact, is even described in dealing with these emotional because of the oral and because of the physical dynamics involved, where in verse 21 we are told, indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, quote, I tremble with fear. So there's the people standing at a distance. They're afraid. And furthermore, Moses, the one who said, do not fear, does so while he himself is evidently experiencing fear. He now draws near in the light. No, he draws near in the thick darkness where God was. Now, I find this powerfully, powerfully moving when I consider the darkness descending upon that cross where Jesus Christ died and the veil of the temple being torn in two from top to bottom because throughout the Older and Newer Testaments, this powerful imagery of darkness in comparison to light has got to be understood of Sinai in comparison to Zion. And how you find the merging point at the cross of Jesus Christ. Where all of a sudden the inaccessible majesty addresses our needs for proximity. And offers us approachable mercy. He does not leave you and does not leave me at Sinai. 
At the same time, he wants you and he wants me to deal with the realities of Sinai in our own lives. Am I dealing with the realities of the holiness of God? Am I dealing with the realities of the sinfulness of sin? Am I dealing with reality? Or am I recreating God into some fictional character who is simply there at all times in the accessible moments for me when I need him to draw upon whatever attributes are most pleasing to me at that moment? Now, this is not God. That is a counterfeit. You've got to start with Sinai, but you don't end with Mount Sinai. So once you begin with Mount Sinai and you're dealing with the inaccessible majesty of God that addresses the holiness of God and the sinfulness of humanity, then the writer Hebrews has got something more to say to you and to me. And it's found in verse 22. But you have come to Mount Zion. There is your second mountain. That as we prepare for communion, make use of the following comparison. You've examined Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, the words are, for you have not come. But you are a student of truth. And you are collecting now the strands of grace that are found in these verses. And now you connect Sinai to Zion. And here you and I are informed, but you have come. Now there's a tension here as well. It doesn't say someday you will come. And yet Jesus Christ will return to Zion. What we are told here is that in our own spiritual relationship with God the Majestic One is God the Merciful One who has informed us based upon the work of Jesus Christ on that cross. If you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have come. And when you partake of the bread and you partake of the cup, it's a coming, so to speak. You're able to say, I can access him. I can access this holy God, even as a sinful person, because I'm saved by grace, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus. Now, here's what's interesting. In verses 22 through 24, to seize your attention and my attention, the writer of Hebrews is brilliant. He uses a little two-word expression repeatedly. Two-letter expression. It's the T-O. Notice how he goes about using the word to. To now explain how this inaccessible God has provided you and provided me with approachable mercy. This is a word of mercy. A word of approachability. But you have come. Come to what? You're asking to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. So now, couple, group those phrases together. Consider now Mount Zion. 
Jerusalem has been the center for the worship of Yahweh ever since Abraham was asked by God to sacrifice his son on Mount Moriah, which later in scriptures is identified with Zion. Years afterward, David brought the Ark of the Covenant into Zion in 2 Samuel chapter 6. In Psalm 132, you and I are told that Zion is the place that God has established to be his resting point geographically in all history. In that future millennium, where Jesus Christ is described in a very powerful way in Isaiah chapter 2, you can now take this tension of the now and the not yet. You have come. You are positioned already. At the same time, listen to what he says in Isaiah chapter 2, verse 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord. Zion. And to reemphasize what he's saying in that future day of his coming and return. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 2, in that day the branch of the Lord shall be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the land shall be pride and honor of the survivors of Israel, and he who is left in where? Zion. And remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, and everyone who has been recorded for life in Jerusalem, when the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion. Did you hear that? Wash away the filth of the daughters of Zion. And now, all of a sudden, you're saying to yourself, my word, I'm thinking of Palm Sunday. Because on Palm Sunday, there's a passage of Scripture that's typically read as Jesus is making his way into Jerusalem. Fear not, daughter of Zion. Did you get that? Fear not, daughter of Zion. Behold, your king is coming. The helmet is being lifted off the face. Sitting on a donkey's coat. But you assume a white horse, not a donkey's coat, but Again, the tension, the white horse is still to come in the book of Revelation. The tension between the now and the not yet. The tension between Sinai and Zion. The tensions that are experienced when you're dealing on one hand with the inaccessible majesty of God and on the other hand, the approachable mercy of God. And this is the biblical tension now that the writer of Hebrews is trying to draw his people out as they're prepping themselves for receiving such as you and I are doing the bread and the cup. And so you take that too to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God in the heavenly Jerusalem. And now what do you do? You start grouping with some of the other phrases that begin again with that little word too. And to innumerable angels in festal gathering. And you're saying to yourself, man, I remember when I was reading in Exodus. And when God was delivering the law in the thickness of the darkness, there were angels that were accompanying what was taking place on that mount as the moral law was being delivered. 
Now, in today's cultural relativism, where God's moral law is being diminished, where everybody can do what's right in their own eyes, nonetheless, what we do is we bring back to the forefront the inaccessible majesty of God, Mount Sinai. Couple it now with the approachable mercy of God, Zion. You say, in order to get to Zion, you've got to go through Sinai. And don't miss out on the T.O.'s. He doesn't leave you there either. Because you get to verse 23, another T.O., and to the assembly, and to the assembly of the firstborn. Now, what God has done for you and done for me is to understand that in Exodus chapter 4, Israel was described as the firstborn of God. The firstborn of God. First in preeminence. The one that receives rights. But what interests me all the more was that, you remember the twins, Jacob and Esau? Esau came first in time, and then Jacob in the delivery of the children. Esau was first in position of actual birth, but it was Jacob who received God's favor and was called the firstborn. Ephraim was Joseph's second child, but Jeremiah recognized him as God's firstborn. In the book of Hebrews, what you will find not once, not twice, three times, is this heavily emphasis upon Jesus, the firstborn, the one who inherits the rights. So you've come to the assembly of the firstborn. So we sing, all those who put faith and trust in Jesus Christ have this right to be part of this assembly. And then you add another T.O., still in verse 23, and to God, the judge of all. And now you're connecting God, the judge of Sinai, with God, who is merciful, and Zion. How do you continue to connect these two mountains? You keep working it. And to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. And you say, but Sinai speaks of the fact I'm not perfect. There's a distancing from this inaccessible majesty of God because of his holiness, because of my sinfulness. And then God breaks in. Sends Jesus to die for your sins. Mine. In Hebrews chapter 10 and verse 14. We are informed, for by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified, perfected. The spirits of the righteous made perfect, same word. He saves now the best. He's building up with these T.O.s, one after another after another. There are seven groupings. He gets to the next one, and it's Jesus the mediator of a new covenant. And you're taken aback now as he is so, so relationally oriented with Jesus. He doesn't even call him Christ. Jesus. You have moved from the, from the impersonal to the personal, but you start with Sinai in order to get to Zion. There's a brilliance to this flow until you get to the crux of the matter, the seventh aspect of this whole movement. 
and to the sprinkled blood, which is what your cup will represent. That speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. And the blood of Abel was the first shed blood in all of history. And the blood of Jesus Christ was the most significant blood that was shed in all of history. And now you tie it all together. And what you're saying is, I need somebody who is somehow tied to Zion to be able to pull this off for me, to be able to fully appreciate what God has done. And you've got it. Because what appears on the screen is Romans chapter 11, verse 26 and 27, where you and I are now told that the deliverer will come from where? From Zion. And will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my what? Covenant with them when I take away their sins. And now you have pulled together the, the unapproachable majesty. With this entire sense now of mercy. There's a story that comes out of London. A little boy was visiting London with his family. He had told his parents ahead of time that he wanted to see the king. Tells you roughly the time period. When they arrived at the palace, obviously the gates were closed. And so he went to one of the nearby leaders that were standing around the palace, and they told him, sorry, you're not allowed to get in there. And all of a sudden, a well-dressed man approached him, heard the conversation, turned to the boy and asked, "Um, can I help you? And the boy said, I want so much to be able to see the king. And this man took the boy by the head and said, come with me. They moved toward the gate, and the soldiers sprang to attention. God quickly opened the gate for them to enter. He led the boy into the palace, up the steps. No one tried to stop them until they went right into the king's setting. And the reason why that little boy could do it is because this man who took him by the hand was the prince of Wales, the son of the king. And he and he alone was the one who gave the boy access to his father. And that's what this world so desperately needs, is access. But you can't get to Zion until you've gone through Sinai. So you pull all this together and you say, how do you do it? Look at what appears on the screen. It pulls together now the two mountains of your life experience. On one hand, there's Mount Sinai. For you have not come. But due to the shed blood of Jesus Christ on that cross, here's your Mount Zion. But you have come. And that's why when we partake of the bread and we partake of the cup, There is this tension of sorrow and joy. There's this tension of the sinfulness of humanity and the sinless one of divinity. It all comes together in Jesus. And Jesus puts it all together for you.
As the worship leaders are coming forward, let's look to the Lord in prayer. And Father, we're thanking you for who you are. Thanking you for how you work. Thanking you, Father, for though inaccessible, you made yourself approachable through Jesus. And the irony is that people misunderstood Christ's majesty. They wanted a certain type of king. They needed your type of king. He went to the cross to die for our sins. He was raised on the third day. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And we approach you through the finished work of Jesus. And we give you the praise in Jesus' name.